Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We can all come up with designs on our own in our heads. But what's the point if you're not serving the people who are going to use the space? That data is absolutely crucial in terms of coming up with those solutions. That will make a real difference to people who feel isolated. What can be done on a city scale to try to build in resilience to heat waves? It just demonstrates how all these issues are so intricately intertwined you can't silo them in any way students then were designing for the future which included how are these people who live in flats with no outside space how do they need that public space to function for them during the heat waves that we now are getting every summer you're listening to talking landscape a podcast which explores the big issues in placemaking nature and the environment through conversations with leading landscape architects And today's episode is being recorded in front of a live audience. I'm your host, Marsha Ramroop, the founder of Unheard Voice, a strategic inclusion consultancy working mostly in architecture and the built environment. And in this episode, we'll be considering what makes place hospitable and exploring how we can foster comfortable and welcoming urban landscapes. And I'm actually going to start this episode with a quote. It's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. That's a quote from Krishnamurthy, an Indian philosopher, and it was popularized by um, Sinead O'Connor in an interview about eight years ago. It's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And I was thinking about that quote and the issues of isolation, loneliness, the heating of the planet. And then I was reflecting that we had a choice at that stage. And the choice was to adjust and be in denial of that which is around us, or to become sick ourselves and to fall into despondency, or to be maladjusted and seek to deliver solutions, 
which is what our two guests have chosen to do through their careers in landscape architecture. So joining me are Professor Debbie Bartlett and Claire Penny. And Claire is a course leader for landscape architecture at the University of East London, where she recently tasked her students to work with the London Borough of Hackney and people who live there to look at isolation and loneliness on their estate. More on that in just a bit. And Debbie Bartlett is a landscape architect ecologist and professor of environmental conservation at the University of Greenwich. And in this edition of Landscape, she wrote about the significance of thermal comfort in landscape practice. But before we dive into both of those subjects, what drew you to landscape architecture in the beginning of your career? How did you end up in it? Um, entirely by accident. I, I think this is something quite common. I did a, a degree in environmental physiology. Um, ecology didn't exist in those days, which gives my age away a bit. And I'd been brought up with horticulture. My mother was a professional gardener and she was assistant to Christopher Lloyd when he was at Y. So I'd been brought up with that. So after my degree, um, I designed gardens, did horticulture and um, I, I got Lyme's disease, which at that time was not very well known. And I was quite seriously disabled, as anyone who's unlucky to get it will, will find. Um, and so I did my master's at Y in landscape ecology, design and management. And that at that time gave me part twos and I went on and did the exams and became a landscape architect. So maybe it's um, ticks. Hmm? <laughs> 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 led me into landscape architecture yes it's quite a story wow and um we'll come back to some of that in in a moment how did you end up in in landscape architecture Claire? it was something that i actually had a teacher we did a garden design project for technology and she said oh you should be a landscape architect and i didn't really know what that meant um but when making my choices for university I was a bit scared to specialized that early in life at 18. Um, and so I did American studies, which is completely different, but for me was about having a range of different things every day, which actually is what being a landscape architect is all about. Um, I did that and then I went into administration for many years, worked in all kinds of jobs I could tell you about, um, but then um, happened to go along to an event about a new public space being created in my hometown of Hull. and thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, and I got some work experience with some fantastic friends of mine now who helped me in the initial stages. Um, and then I went and did a, a two-year MA uh, to convert to become a landscape architect. I did that in Sheffield. Um, and, and that's it. The rest is history. Wow. Extraordinary. Very, very different stories, um, but still driven by this central sort of purpose, I think, and, and trying to create a a better world. So thermal comfort, you talk about that in, in your piece. Tell me a little bit about the background to your article and uh, the idea of thermal comfort. Well, I think we've all been aware of a climate change for some time. And lots of work has gone into um, dealing with floods. Everyone knows about flood mitigation. Um, heat and heat waves, although people talk about global warming, the actual effect of heat waves has not really been taken seriously. And when we started, 
um, the Cool Towns project, which would be oh six, seven years ago now, people laughed. They were, why are you thinking about heat and thermal comfort in Northern Europe? And we said, well, because it's going to be an increasing problem and we need to be thinking about it now and thinking about what the consequences are because um, global warming, climate change, however you want to refer to it, is actually extreme weather events. So um, it's, if you like, the, the sort of lost sibling of the, of the climate change scenario. So working with my colleagues um, in Dutch universities, um, we were working with um, local authorities I'm um, Claire, you were working with people in the States, with individual people and loneliness. And it's quite interesting. We were looking at the European word is municipalities, cities, what can be done on a city scale to try to build in resilience to heat waves, while at the same time thinking about flooding and cold weather in the winter. This idea of, of thermal comfort, um, why is it so important when it comes to that urban design, um, not only from a sustainability point of view, but from an inclusivity point of view, would you say? Well, in hot weather, the people who suffer most are the elderly, the very young. Children are much nearer the ground, so get hotter, can't control their temperature so well. And of course, um, anyone who's disabled or quite frankly poor, the rich just put in air conditioning, thereby making the whole situation worse for everybody. And also um, don't have the ability to get out of the city, which is hotter than the surrounding countryside, to go somewhere cooler. So it is very much an inclusion issue. And, and we were looking at trying to get local decision makers, which means really elected members and councils, to look at their city, look at where is most likely to get hot and what can be done about it because of the effect on the local economy. If people are too hot to go out, it's unpleasant walking around, they won't spend money in the shops. They won't go out to the, you know, the restaurants, etc. And there's quite a lot of work being done on the effect of temperature on economy. It's fascinating. And actually, um, it just demonstrates how all these issues are so intricately intertwined. You can't silo them in any way, which now very neatly radio segue uh, across to uh, Claire to talk about this um, introduce this idea of isolation. Now, I suppose so, someone might, someone really not really thinking about it very much will say, well, landscape architecture, isolation, really, is there a connection there? Why would you ask your students to, to look into something like that? Well, one of the things with this project in particular, um, we were approached by the London Borough of Hackney and they had a group of residents who had been trying to improve um, a street on their estate. They'd been guerrilla gardening. They'd been out there just kind of taking over spaces and, and planting flowers and doing all kinds of great things for the wider neighbourhood, which included people who couldn't get out there and do the gardening 
themselves, but who we then met and said that they'd really appreciated the work that these residents had done. And it's interesting that you were mentioning, Debbie, about th this idea of who gets most affected by these heat problems. And we actually did translate that. So in our project, um, it's in two parts. So in the first term, we worked on this project on the Nightingale Estate, but we then did a wider project to look at another space in the neighbourhood. So we looked at Hackney Downs Park and students then were designing for the future, which included how are these people who live in flats with no outside space, how do they need that public space to function for them during the heat waves that we now are getting every summer? And that naturally included a lot of water design, you know, providing different things. One of my students uh, looked at wild swimming as an option in a public park, which you get in more rural locations. Again, like you said, if you can escape the city, these things are there for you. But if you're in the city, they're not necessarily available. That's a really interesting combination, isn't it? How do um, those who are isolated then go into those spaces, but can they use them if they're too hot? Um, so what in what ways are some of the ways that those heat waves can affect people, habits, travel, the way people behave in spaces, would you say, Debbie? Well, people who might otherwise walk or cycle to work are more likely to get in the car. People are more likely to stay in rather than go out if, if it's hot. So it can um, embed that isolation. Please. It can definitely embed that isolation. Um, when people go out to um, green areas, I mean, green areas are cooler, but how much cooler, how, how much space is there for people in the cool areas? The Dutch have an interesting term. They talk about the flip-flop distance. You're probably familiar with the um, the angst standard. Everyone should be living within a certain distance of public open space of a particular size, and that's built into our planning system. Uh, the Dutch talk about it being the flip-flop distance, the how, how quickly can people get to a cool area if it's very hot. One of the things we found with our project, so the, the road that we were invited to look at first, this street, um, is just a stone's throw from Hackney Downs Park, which is a fantastic resource. Um, but the route to get there is unappealing. Um, and so also thinking about people who have disabilities, if you manage to get down from your flat, when you get to the bottom, you need somewhere to sit, to rest for a moment. And then on the walk there also need spaces to rest that are cool as well in the summer. Um, and that's just what wasn't there. It was a street dominated by parking. Um, there were some large trees creating shade, but not anywhere to sit on that route. And so even that short distance for some people is too much. And so they're then excluded from a space that sh should be welcoming and should be available to them. It's fascinating that piece about inclusive design, how when we think about things like seating, making sure that it's shaded, it doesn't just help people who have, you know, health conditions. It might be people who've got loads of shopping or it might be um, people who actually temporarily, you know, not well. So when you make spaces inclusive for one group, invariably you make it inclusive for all. So it just is uh, that wonderful virtuous circle. Um, so what are the challenges around, you know, creating that equitable space, making sure that it can be cool enough? Who's standing in the way? Oh, a whole range of decision makers. <laughs> um, I mean, what we did, I, I ran workshops um, sitting decision makers down and taking them through a process 
so that they identified for themselves where might be problem areas within their city, looking at a city-wide scale. Again, it's interesting, you were looking at a street, yes. Uh, whereas we were looking at the, um, the city. Um, and after that, looking at vulnerability mapping, where are the vulnerable groups that might be affected by those areas being hot in hot weather? And then looking at possible solutions. And of course, the barrier is always firstly money. But if you put that to one side, you have all sorts of issues like um, the maintenance issue. If you put seats under trees, you do have maintenance issues. You have pigeons sitting in the trees, people wanting the seats then cleaned. You have falling leaves on them. If you're doing anything with a square, for example, or an open space, you have to make sure you're not getting in the way of uh, the bin men and perhaps more importantly, emergency services. You know, these, are, these are all standard to a landscape architect, but are not always standard to um, people who are looking at these, these issues. And then you've got to think about, well, what interventions are going to be the most effective? Um, and the second thing we did in the Cool Towns project was actually measure the effectiveness of various interventions on reducing heat stress. What kind of interventions were they? Uh, well, we looked at um, green walls, hopeless, really don't do much at all. Uh, they're okay at insulating buildings on the inside, but in terms of um, modifying outdoor temperature, hopeless. Trees, different kinds, different species, different shapes, um, water features, shade sails, um, all sorts of different different things. And again, that's published as the intervention catalogue. Without wanting to go into too much detail, <laughs> what we're actually measuring is, is what's called PET, physiological equivalent temperature, because we all know what the air temperature is. But if, if you have a, an air temperature on a dry day, it feels quite different to the air temperature on a humid day. So what we're measuring is uh, we're using uh, weather stations to measure uh, wind speed, humidity, incident radiation, air temperature, and all of these factors together to calculate the thermal comfort index. And when you speak about those things, those, that data is absolutely crucial in terms of coming up with those solutions. Yeah. That will make a real difference to people who feel isolated and uh, using those spaces. So um, how do you tend to use data to be able to drive forward your work in changing outcomes? We use data a lot. Um, one of the challenges we have is often there's an absence of data. There's increasingly data in terms of things like biodiversity, ecology, and so on, um, which has been driven by planning policy. But in terms of people, it's often anecdotal. And Alice, who we worked with at London Borough of Hackney, came to us and as part of the project, we talked at length about a resident who she met um, who was very isolated in their flat. And when she went back to speak to him, a month later about the project and how it's proceeding, she found out she was the first person he'd seen since she visited the last time, which is just heartbreaking, um, but is the reality for lots of people who, who live, particularly in flats, I think, you know, where they're not at ground level. There is this kind of theory about how you're disconnected from the ground if you live at higher 
levels in flats. Um, but also there's access issues. So we spoke to some residents where one of them was a carer for his wife who couldn't leave the flat, but it meant that he tended not to go out unless he had a reason because he was worried about his wife. So he would go out to the doctors to get prescriptions and to the shops, but he didn't really feel like he should pause at any point. Um, but also there wasn't anywhere for him to pause. Um, and yeah, he came out to talk to the students. Um, he talked about the kind of place that he would like. He was really interested in kind of formal gardens with flowers. Um, and I think the students really picked up on that because we one of the challenges with landscape architecture is we talk a lot about biodiversity and the use of native species but there are people in the in in the public who still love the flowers and the formal gardens and that was something that many of the students came up with in their designs um, and actually interestingly all located it closer to his flat um, and it, it really does show you the the power of meeting people you know we can all come up with designs on our own in our heads but what's the point if you're not serving the people who are going to use the space? Um, and, and I think that that's the lesson that we try to teach. You know, when you go into professional practice, you never do anything in absence of people. You're going to be meeting, whether it's your client, whether it's stakeholders, you know, public consultation is very big. I worked in local authority for many years um, and public consultation was the most important thing that we did because you can only get so much as a person looking in and it's those kind of conversations that you have that can change how you design. Can I ask you a little bit about water features? Um, there's a, quite a bit of um, sort of engineering really around that and then there's a question of you know the quality of the water and maybe there's some moral judgments about how water can be used differently. How do you tackle those kinds of issues? Water features are really difficult as a as a landscape architect. The, the main issue you come across is budget. So the maintenance of, of any kind of water feature requires, you know, a budget. It's about being smart as a designer. You know, if there's a lower budget, you've got to think about, well, what are ways we can get water into this space? Because it is a draw for people. Um, it's something within us all um, that's just innate. Um, but also those spaces benefit wildlife. Um, perhaps not the fountains, but certainly, you know, wetlands and, and other spaces. Um, and in terms of cleaning and, and water quality, you can design that in. You know, there are ways of filtration through nature. You don't have to be using pumps and complex systems or chemicals. Um, if you design with the right plants, you can purify water through a system. Um, and that's something that we talk through with our students and many of them included in their designs. That's fascinating. And I think um, we're talking about water features being a way of cooling down those spaces as well so it draws people in it reduces that isolation piece by maybe bringing people out of of their um their homes and their flats uh, it helps cool down but then there's this other okay it's going to cost a little bit more is there a perception of well we're going to spend money and are we going to get a return on investment piece going on that's very financial rather than a social return on investment? How much do you hear uh, your clients and uh, the authorities talking about that? It's a very different situation on the continent. Water playgrounds are commonplace and although they have the same concerns as we have about um, leptospirosis, rats, um, they see them as a way of keeping people cool by physical contact. So they're encouraging people to go into the water fountains and into the water, which we tend not to do here, which is interesting. Is it like a um, keep off the grass type thing? 
I think here it's it's quite safety yeah. orientated. Um, but having said that, uh, once you're outside the area where the uh, water vapor is falling, they don't actually have much effect on thermal comfort. They have a, a, arguably a psychological effect. If you could see water or hear water, you will tend to feel cooler, but you won't actually be cooler. So if you're vulnerable, in a vulnerable group, that might even be more dangerous, mm, which is which is an interesting, you know, I think, and I taking up your point of there not being much data, that was why our project was set up, was because of the lack of data. And um, people just assuming that green walls were good for, for cooling. The best thing for cooling is shade. Doesn't matter whether it's um, artificial shade sails, pergolas, awnings, or trees. That's the most effective way of, of keeping people cool. It is really interesting, the perceptions that people have about certain things and, you know, with our designs. I think one, one of the challenges you talked about, antisocial behaviour and broken glass and these kind of worries that on the continent they, they overcome. Um, and having worked in local authority, they're very common. You know, there's always somebody who's going to say, what about this? What about that? It takes somebody brave in the council to step up and say, actually, we can do this and it's OK. Um, and I worked with with a team when I was at Winchester City Council who were brave and were willing to step up. And we included the complete opposite, actually. We designed fire pits for a public open space so people could toast marshmallows and could have, have barbecues and the scouts could come and use the space. Um, and we had thank you letters sent to us, which doesn't happen very often in the council, to say that we've been out, it's December the 3rd, but we went to toast marshmallows and we've had a lovely time. Thank you. Um, and we haven't, there weren't any problems with it. And you have to demonstrate that, that, you know, the problems are very, very rare and very small. Both of you have worked with councils. Uh, how, how much are they the bad guys? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to think of them being the good guys in general. I mean, they are the elected representatives of the community. They have a huge amount of pressures they're working under. And actually, they're trying to deal with the immediate. And what I'm trying to do is get them to think into the future. And, and that's hard. You know, they've got to keep on top of the immediate. However, when taking them through a workshop so that they realise for themselves the problem, then, you know, they really are quite keen to do something about it. And there are... With the tree planting that we did, we've shown with the measurements that um, using sud systems and tree pits when we're planting trees actually has not only a good effect on uh, reducing surface water uh, flooding, it also promotes the tree growth and therefore gives you a better outcome. So it's that win-win again that's coming in. Um, right, and something you mentioned earlier, uh, was native species. Now, we know that we're living in a really rapidly changing environment. We know that native species cannot necessarily survive. So we have to think very, very hard 
about that. And I think as landscape architects, we have to really think, and, and ecologists, we have to really think around that and think it's not just hot weather in the summer, it's also waterlogging in the winter, it's also novel pests and diseases. We need to take a much more flexible approach in dealing with the problems that we're faced. Tell me a bit more about your students um, and this, this project. You know, how, how was it used as a, as a learning tool to get them you know, engaged with that wider idea of what they're trying to achieve? It began very local, you know, with this one street, a small group of residents, um, and then we widened it out. So they were looking at, you know, a very large Victorian park, um, which has evolved over the years. Um, and it's that scalability, you know, of skills. You may be working one day on something very small. You might be working on a garden design or a community school project. Um, and on another day, you might be looking at how are you going to reintroduce habitats over a large area. Um, and certainly that's what the project gave us. You know, it began with this contact from Alice at Hackney, who said, can you help us with a small project? And, and it carried on from there. Um, I have two of my students here this evening. Um, I have Lucy nice. and Lily so in the audience. Give us a wave. Yeah, give us a wave. And actually, it's really interesting that these two students are here because they both had very different approaches. So that's one thing we find even with the same site. Obviously, each designer has their own view of the world and, and what they bring to it. Um, Lucy chose to look at the Nightingale Estate as a whole, and Lily chose to look at Hackney Downs Park. Um, and they were both looking at sustainability, but in completely different ways. So Lucy's project was very much about um, reuse, minimizing the amount of change, which for a landscape architect is difficult because our job is to come in and change things. Um, but looking at how you could gradually, incrementally make changes to improve a space for the people. And it was very much about a community embedded process. Um, Lily's design for Hackney Downs Park was very much about sustainability in terms of biodiversity um, and also water management, um, which included the wild swimming, um, which she's really passionate about. Um, but also thinking about access in that, you know, wild swimming is for everyone was her theme, but some people feel it's not for them. You know, they might not be a swimmer or if they are, they're scared of swimming in the wild. So parts of her design were about trying to gradually introduce people to wild swimming, you know, having paddling areas for children that were in freshwater natural locations, they weren't in a paddling pool, um, and, and making people feel that these places are for them. And we do struggle with that with landscape architecture and architecture, that people feel we're imposing things upon them rather than listening to what they really need. Um, and so it's about making sure that people feel included. Yeah, that um, co-authorship piece is so important, isn't it? In terms of, you were talking about um, earlier, actually, uh, about really listening to those voices and you know making sure that there's this participatory approach to ensuring the way things forward. But um, how do we um, help people? How do we inform them what they need when they don't know about things like you know, the thermal um, impact of a particular idea. The problem with a lot of participation is that people don't do it from a theoretical background. And I'll, I'll just tell you one tiny story about this, where a landscape architect was doing a redesign of a park and wanted me to run the participation side of it because it's something I've specialised in for, for years. And... Um, You'll be able to relate to this, Marsha. When do you pull in your consultant? 
not after you've distributed the questionnaire to all the residents in the area. And in his questionnaire, he had given people a list of things they might want to see in the park. <laughs> shopping list. A shopping list. <laughs> but that wasn't the worst thing. Then he had given um, an open for your suggestions. And a whole load of people got together, as they might do, and lobbied for an ice rink which, of course, the council didn't have the money for, wasn't thinking of. The council was thinking of, you know, more rose beds or a few more trees. So completely stuffed the participation um, process and led to people who were very upset and disgruntled because they'd been asked what they wanted and then been told they couldn't have it. I would always set you know, think very carefully about what am I, what am I actually going to get out of this participation process? It's not doing participation for its own sake. It's to actually get people to think. And I always think of a questionnaire as an educational tool. So you're taking people through steps to make sure that they're aware of the issues. So participatory workshops was what we did with the councils, enabling them to identify for themselves what the problem was. When people pick up their latest edition of Landscape, they are going to go straight to your articles, of course. But um, in amongst them is um, some research about the value of co-design in the pub public realm as well, um, uh, reporting from the uh, Towards Spatial Justice Research Project. So that's worth um, picking up and having a look at it. Really just uh, go back to that original point about everything being completely, uh, you know, intricately entwined in terms of how you go about creating our spaces um, in all these different ways. Um, if we can uh, talk a, a bit more about your students, um, because, you, you know, your, your whole body lifts when you talk about them as well. Um, just to hear a bit more about, you know, how they felt going into those processes. You know, it's, it's not always easy, is it, to kind of Get up, get up, and go into a community and talk to real people about impact in their lives. Yeah, it is. It is difficult, and we were very careful about. And it's the same thing with public consultation: is that you have to be careful how you do that. And one of the challenges we had was not raising expectations for the community group that we could come in and solve all their problems. Um, and I mean, all the students came and said that they loved that aspect of it, meeting real people, because it does happen at universities that you just have to kind of develop a project for them and there isn't something real in it. Um, so we're really lucky when we get these opportunities. What we did was we met the, the group twice in development of the designs, but we then went back to present to them what we had. And what was interesting was, and it was a communication thing, they thought they were going to come up with one design for them. But we arrived with a whole raft of designs because the students each did a design. Um, and one of the women who was involved very heavily in the community group, um, who I'd say is a tough woman, had tears in her eyes as we presented. I mean, it was so wonderful to see somebody who had tried so hard for so long to make changes in her community feel that somebody was listening. And I think the students really responded to that. It seems like from what you've said that, you know, good design can provide meaningful solutions in so many ways around inclusivity, sustainability, community. 
um, and really weave together, um, you know, those those ideas in a, a purposeful and rewarding way. But it's absolutely essential that you have good management plans. Design itself is not enough. I mean, I come from a management background, but it doesn't matter how good the design is. If you don't have the um, resources to manage it well, then it, it probably will not last in the same way and continue to serve the function that you wanted it to serve. So I think management is just as important as design. Yes, I agree. And I'm a designer um, and I, I fought long and hard at the council to try and get money that was allocated for capital projects put into the operational budget. It's it's a challenge in local authorities. The two operate separately. So if you save some money on your design, you can't just put that money into management. Um, but it's a long-term changing of minds to get that to happen. It was interesting, both of you have mentioned the long-term. And um, that feels like that's, um, that's a way that the whole process of trying to create landscape that is meaningful and can serve its purpose is going to really create the kind of outcomes we want to see in um, our public spaces. Yes, and I think that we need to be aware that landscape managers are a different profession to landscape designers. Very few of us are dual qualified, but it is that idea that of disciplines working together it's that collaborative teamwork, um, interdisciplinary approach that I think, I think it's the future. I'm doing work at the moment with um, highways engineers and ecologists and, uh, you know, building that, that team. Um, it goes right through all the built environment construction professions. I think we don't always respect each other's disciplines as much as we should do. And we don't necessarily collaborate in the way that we should. So collaboration, uh, inspiration, uh, respect um, and good design, but with great management as well is the future. Um, uh, thank you, both of you. And maybe uh, when it comes to that idea of having a, uh, a society that is well and that we can be better adjusted to is something more about that long-term thinking. Um, so the current edition of Landscape is available for free online now. Um, thank you both for your contribution to today's programme and you can find out more about both of those articles uh, on the Landscape Institute website.